welcome back. Thanks for being with us here on a Wednesday afternoon. You can reach us 403-974-8255. We've got a lot more to get to this afternoon. But I want to get to, to this uh, open letter to the prime minister that you know, highlights some really important issues when it comes to Canada's standing on the world stage. And a warning here. Canada is increasingly being viewed by our partners as a well-meaning but unserious player on the international stage. And that that perception can have some real dire consequences, both in terms of our you know, alliances, our standing, but you know, that can have some economic fallout as well. So joining us to, to, to explain, I guess, you know, where the sentiment's coming from, why it's important that the government address this, uh, pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. Uh, the author of this letter, Perrin Beatty, is president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, much more chamber.ca. Mr. Beatty, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Glad to be with you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so let's talk about why you, you felt uh, a need, maybe almost a sense of urgency, I guess, in, in calling attention to these issues and calling the Prime Minister's attention to these issues. I, th- I think for two or three reasons. The first is I think it's appropriate at the end of the year as you prepare for a new one to take stock and to look at where the country is and where you should be and what sort of challenges lie ahead for the year, for the year ahead. And this is why I wanted to do it uh, when I did. But it really summed up a number of concerns that I have. We're living in an extremely an extremely dangerous period, probably the most dangerous period in any of our lifetimes. The world changed fundamentally at the time that the that the Russians had their illegal invasion of uh, of Ukraine, and it's destabilized the economy, it's destabilized society, it's destabilized uh, security around the world as well. And it's important for us to recognize the world has changed and that Canada's role in the world needs to change as well. Now, this could be Canada's moment. If you look, for example, the challenges that there are in terms of ensuring global energy security or global food security, Canada has massive supplies of the three Fs of food, fuel and fertilizer. We have rich supplies as well of, of critical minerals that are so important both for security and for the vehicle sector. Yet what we lack today is a strategy to bring these to the world and to make our contributions, both a, an opportunity and an obligation for Canada to act and act now. So does that mean, you know, policy change or when we talk about responding to changing global circumstances, what does that response look like? Well, it's not a matter so much of policy change, but of having a policy. Uh, In many instances, it's not clear that that Canada has a coherent international strategy. How are we responding to to Russia? Are we doing our part when it comes to ensuring that that the democracies have an alternative to to providing money to to Putin for his illegal invasion? An example was uh, in the fall I I was in Japan. The Japanese have been looking for years to Canada to supply LNG. Right. 10% of their LNG today comes from Russia. They don't have any choice. They don't have other places to go. And why is it in anybody's interest or in the interest of global security that we should leave them in a position that they're forced to subsidize Putin's war? You highlight the uh, Indo-Pacific strategy as an example of, uh, you know, where, where foreign policy is taking a, a strategic view, uh, you know, forward-looking kind of approach. Uh, what's, what do you like about the Indo-Pacific strategy? How can that represent maybe our, our approach elsewhere? What's very positive is that the government has recognized that this is an area of enormously high growth that it is of growing importance both in terms of the economy and in terms of global security as well. 
that it's incredibly diverse, that a very large percentage of the world's population lives there, and that they recognize, as, as the Minister of Foreign Affairs has said, that that we should be putting the same emphasis on countries like Japan and Korea as we do on countries like Britain, France, Italy, or Germany. And that makes eminent sense. The, the challenge right now in the Indo-Pacific is that the strategy is in a bit of tatters, that as it relates to the two largest countries there, China and India, our relationships are quite fraught. And we need to rethink where our emphasis is going to be there and, and where, there, where there's a potential forced to deepen relationships. So Japan and Korea would be two obvious candidates for that. Mm-hmm. What are the consequences of, you know, staying the course, the status quo, and, you know, allowing these issues to, to persist? There are a number of things. The, the first is missed opportunity for Canada and, and you know, and, and the abdication of responsibility to the rest of the world to, to do our part. The second uh, is that we are drifting toward irrelevance. But it used to be that the United States, for example, our, our greatest ally and greatest trading partner, would constantly be saying, how do we get the Canadians involved? Now, increasingly, what they're saying is, should we inform the Canadians? Mm-hmm. So you had the Australia-UK-US agreement on defense, where we learned about it after it was made public. They didn't feel that we were a useful partner in that. And Australia, shortly, will have capacity to go into the Canadian Arctic that Canada lacks as they acquire nuclear-propelled submarines. Um, this is at the very same time as, as Russia is militarizing the high Arctic and as, that they, as they see enormous commercial potential for it as well. And as China is saying that is, is claiming that they're a near Arctic nation. You think all of this is still salvageable? It is, but it's urgent that we, that we give it the attention. Now, one of the things that happened just about on the same day as I sent my letter is that Rear Admiral Bob Ochterlony, who's a senior member of the Canadian Forces of the Navy, uh, gave a year-end interview where he talked about where we are in the world. He said that, unfortunately, we're overly comfortable as Canadians and complacent about uh, where we are in the world at this point. And he made the, the point that as he travels around the world, that increasingly people are raising questions with him about where Canada is and whether or not it's actively involved and whether or not we can be relied upon. Uh, we are allowing our armed forces to, to fall into neglect. We are not keeping our international obligations. And, and most importantly, we're not living up to our potential as a nation. And it's important that we recognize that as the first step to correcting it. What about on the trade front? And I know you were part of this uh, Team Canada trade mission to Japan, you know, to, to diversify our trading partners, even when it comes to, to the United States and our trading relationship with our, with our main partner. Uh, do we need uh, a forward-looking strategy in how we're going to address all of this moving forward? We sure do. And, you know, I give the government credit for the Team Canada missions to, to Asia. And uh, Mary Yang, the international trade minister, has worked very hard on that. But one of the areas where we really need to focus right now is on the relationship with the United States. Uh, If any business had one customer that that bought two-thirds of what it was selling, that business would give a lot of attention to that relationship. And in 2026, the three nations of of COSMA, the trilateral trade agreement that we have with Mexico and the United States, the three nations are going to have to signify whether they favor continuing the agreement or not. Uh, we're about to enter a U.S. election where we may find a contest between two protectionists for president of the United States. And we can't afford 
to wait until sometime after that is over to take our case to the American people that having a strong relationship with Canada is beneficial to them. And at the end of the day, the Americans will do what they see as being in their self-interest. That's what countries do. And that's why it's important for us, provincial premiers, the federal government, the private sector, to be reaching out across the United States and taking the message that, that this relationship benefits us, yes, but it's of enormous benefit as well to Americans from one coast to another. Well, some big challenges indeed. We'll see what kind of response uh, this letter gets, what we see from the government uh, moving forward this year. Uh, Pierre and Beatty, thank you so much for making some time here uh, for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Thanks so much for having me. Anytime. All the best. Take care. Uh, that is Perrin Beatty. He is president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Uh, in fact, was actually defense minister uh, back in the mid-80s under Brian Mulroney. So we've certainly seen, you know, things from that side. And I think it's an interesting point he makes. Like, we've seen all of this global upheaval in recent years. And, and what has Canada's response been? Have we really shifted our focus? Have we really addressed any of this through a policy reset? You'd be hard-pressed to find any evidence of that. So, yeah, the point he makes about Canada increasingly being viewed as a well-meaning but unserious player on the international stage, that seems pretty accurate to me. The conversation around China and what 2024 has in store in terms of, of the direction China chooses to go, and also more specifically Canada's relationship with China and what that looks like. You know, we're, we're in this kind of weird phase where, uh, you know, we, we hear talk of, um, of a new policy direction or a reset of Canada's China policy, and that hasn't happened. Uh, we've got a, an inquiry about to get underway into foreign election interference, and things have been a little bit quiet on that front. Uh, 2023 did end with some signs maybe that, that China was trying to, to reach out once again to the West. You had in November, uh, China's leader uh, Xi Jinping... Uh, meeting with U.S. President Joe Biden, but it doesn't seem like anything really came of that. Uh, there are certainly business interests in both the U.S. and Canada that I think are hoping for some kind of a return to more normal relations with China. But is there any going back to that? Our next guest says there really isn't. Uh, we should recognize that things have changed and uh, there's really no going back to that era. Charles Burden is a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute, non-resident senior fellow with the European Value Center for Security Policy and uh, also a former diplomat to Canada's embassy in Beijing. There's a great op-ed today up at uh, theglobeandmail.com and all of this. Charles, good to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. It's great to speak with you. Happy New Year. So as I say, you know, this, this period of uncertainty here where, where it's unclear where Canada's China policy is going, it's kind of unclear even where, where China itself is going. What, what do you make of this moment we're at here, first of all? Well, there are a bunch of factors there. I think that it's pretty clear that we are not going to go back to the way things were before, which was, you know, we give them an easier time on human rights and their spying inside Canada and their harassment of people inside Canada and their interference in our democratic process. And then in exchange, you know, Canadian business gets some kind of privileged access to the Chinese market. I don't know if we've ever actually achieved that, but it's always been the promise that we could build our prosperity if we're able to come to terms with the Chinese communist regime. And, you know, as you point out in your introduction, we now have a public inquiry going on into uh, China's alleged interference in our in our past elections and I think that the patience of Canadians for China's international behavior such as the genocide in Xinjiang and 
and China's police stations inside Canada and, and um, you know, our continued um, feeling that any regime that could arbitrarily detain Michael Kovrick and Michael's favor for three years and treat them so badly to try and pressure us over an extradition case involving a Chinese uh, CFO, yeah. you know, it's just dead wrong. That's not happening. The other aspect is that things are not going well in China. The economy is doing very badly. There's high rates of youth unemployment. The real estate sector is is in dire straits. Companies going bankrupt right and left, un, unfinished buildings everywhere. People who've invested in real estate who can't get ownership. And we're looking at a situation where, you know, in the past year, the Chinese foreign minister has resigned. The Chinese, well, not resigned. I think in that system, it's purged. Yep. The Chinese Minister of Defense has been purged. There are a whole lot of military figures that we've recently found out will no longer be holding positions in the National People's Congress and Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. And the government's cracking down harder in terms of censorship and in terms of, of uh, domestic and international business. There's an outflow of investment to China. I read that 90% of the 2023 investment, foreign investment in China has been withdrawn because, you know, the boom we expected after China abandoned its COVID policies didn't happen. So, you know, you put all that together, plus China's threat in terms of the South China Sea and Taiwan, uh, the prospect that we could be looking at a military confrontation with China sometime, you know, maybe not so long from now. It really isn't possible for us to maintain this old pattern of Let's do trade with China and and compromise on non-economic issues. Right. I mean, you know, given that that economic weakness, what's your sense of how the the you know Xi Jinping it, it intends to address that? Because it did seem, and as you note in your piece, there was, you know, maybe some indication that they're trying to lure back in Western investment. How how serious is that? Well, I mean, the thing is that. You know, I think she met with people in the United States and sort of tried to go back to to the good old days and lots of investment from the West and, and lots of transfer of high tech high technologies. You know that we now know are being used to service the Chinese military, which increasingly poses a, a strategic threat to us. So, you know, the the idea that that uh, all is forgiven and come back and you can make lots of money um, is belied by both China's economic weakness and the increasing um, uh, return to that kind of state control Leninist system that China um, was looking to open up under Deng Xiaoping. You know, the the idea of opening and reform of Mr. Deng that led to this very high rates of economic growth throughout the 80s and 90s and, you know, the last latter part of the last century um just it, it just isn't happening anymore she is much more like a Mao Zedong type figure who has very strong nationalistic ambitions for china to become a dominant power on the planet and is not prepared to become a responsible stakeholder in the existing global order based on the norms of the united nations and the wto and canada just has to to recognize this and get together in our alliance with the Americans, the Australians, the Brits, and other like-minded powers, to to see that that we have to try and prevent China from expanding its autocratic power and do our best to preserve our position as a middle power 
in a global order based on equal sovereignty and the norms of, of justice and reciprocity that maintain global peace. And, you know, it's hard for us to understand that it's just not the China that, that we thought it was before the two Michaels and yeah. before Mr. Xi came into power. You make an interesting argument in your piece, too, about how maybe Canada needs to, to focus on India as a way of, you know, keeping China in check or, or further isolating China. And, look, I mean, relations with Canada and India aren't great right now either, but why is, is India becoming so important? Well, I think that, you know, if you look at India, you know, leaving aside these very serious allegations of um, of the Indian government being involved in assassination of people in the United States and Canada who are involved in seeking um, independence for a Sikh-dominated um, state in, in Punjab. India is a, a democracy. It does function based on rule of law. And I think we, we can develop a d- degree of trust with India that we cannot with China. You know, India mm-hmm. doesn't have China's ambitions to become a global hegemon and to replace the international existence the existing international order with a China-based um, power order based on what they refer to as the community of the common destiny of mankind and the Belt and Road program of an economic reorientation of the global economy towards China. India is, is more involved in, in you know, co- cooperation and being a responsible stakeholder in the world. And we really don't want to allow a situation where hostility with India leads to India falling into the sort of China, Iran, um, uh, Russia axis and becoming a, a major impediment to the maintenance of, 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 a free, of a free world order where equality between states and, and certain norms, shared norms, prevail. So I, I do think that India, which is rapidly going to become the most populous nation in the world, whose economy is developing quite well, gives us an opportunity to diversify away from China and make us less susceptible to Chinese economic coercion in the future. And, you know, and that includes in areas like critical minerals and energy, yeah. where we really need to be stepping up to the plate and, you know, getting those critical minerals out of Canadian, the Canadian North to challenge China's monopoly on these important things. And we ought to be supporting our allies in getting energy to them to to reduce their dependence on Russia. And so far, the government doesn't seem to get the message, but I think it's coming. You know, I think that I think that uh, that over time we'll understand that Canada has to play a different role vis-a-vis China than we have been over the past couple of decades. No doubt. Uh, your latest, as mentioned, is up at theglobeandmail.com. Charles, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Great to speak with you. All the best. Take care. Uh, that is Charles Burton, Senior Fellow of the McDonnell Laurier Institute, also with the European Values Center for Security Policy and a former diplomat at Canada's embassy in Beijing. So 2024 is going to be an interesting year. And, you know, China, it's always worth keeping a close eye on. But especially what we're seeing right now with some political instability, you know, some questions uh, around that, uh, certainly some pretty clear evidence of economic weakness. So what does it mean then for China? And their role in the world. What does it mean for Taiwan, more specifically? And I think to watch as well, you know, this this alliance between China, Russia, Iran, where does that go moving forward? So some big question marks on that whole file. And then, of course, you know, what is Canada's approach going to be moving forward?
Is our China policy actually changing? If so, to what? And welcome back. Our final hour here on a Wednesday afternoon. Rob Breckenridge with you. Our number 403-974-8255. We'll get to some other issues. We'll get back to more of your phone calls. But I do want to get into this story off the top here this afternoon. And there's some real public interest, I think, in this story. uh, And attempts to deny the public access to how all of this is unfolding. This all concerns a deportation hearing for someone who's a former senior member of Iran's government. Sayed Salman Samani. Canada is trying to deport him. Uh, His side is trying to take steps to prevent the press from covering all of this. Now, last month, a decision was made. The uh, Refugee Board ruled the case would be heard in public. Uh, But Samani's lawyers are appealing that. Uh, So they're trying to prevent uh, the media from covering all of this. But like I say, I think there's some real public interest in this story. So joining us for more on who this individual is, how he came to be in Canada, and why steps are now being taken to deport him. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Stuart Bell, investigative journalist uh, for Global News, globalnews.ca, for the latest on this. Stuart, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Hi, Rob. So what more do we need to know about uh, Sayed Salman Samani? Well, I mean, this goes back about a year or so when the government of Canada um, brought in some pretty stiff sanctions against uh, the Iranian regime. And that was in response to uh, to a, quite a brutal crackdown by Iran on protesters right. who were um, uh, protesting the, the death of a woman who was basically killed by the uh, Iranian um, morality police for not covering her hair. And... So the sanctions brought in basically barred um, any senior members uh, of the Iranian regime from entering Canada. Uh, it turns out that uh, Mr. Samani uh, did somehow arrive in Canada last December. Uh, the government is now trying to remove him, but he's uh, he's attempting to have this whole case uh, brought. Uh, behind closed doors where we would not be allowed to observe it or report on it. So what what was his role when he was in Iran working for the government? What kind of duties would, would he have been engaged in? Well, that's the irony is that in Iran, he was a very public uh, face of the regime. He was this deputy uh, interior minister and also the basically the spokesperson for the Ministry of Interior. So he's all over uh, the Iranian press. He was always uh, defending the the regime. He he spoke on behalf of the regime at the United Nations on several occasions. So he was really a very public uh, person in terms of stating the position of the Iranian government. But now that he's in Canada, he's he's asking for privacy. Um, yeah. He wants his case to be <laughs> to be heard without the benefit of. Uh, of uh, the public observing or the press observing, which is perhaps how things are done in Iran, but it's not how uh, we do things in Canada. Now, how did he come to be in Canada? Well, that's a good question. We don't know. Uh, he arrived, We know that he was interviewed by the Canada Border Services Agency last December, um, and they prepared a report in March that alleged that he was inadmissible to Canada because he was a senior official in the Iranian regime, uh, but how he arrived here, we don't know. This is this is one of the the puzzles of all of this is that um, the government has cracked down on um, 
on Iranian regime members and not allowing them into Canada, but some of them are still somehow arriving here. And how that's happening, we don't know. We've put that question to the government, but they have not responded. Right. So this clearly isn't somebody who has, you know, turned on the regime, is trying to, to get asylum here. It's it's not a case like that in any sense. Well, it may be. We don't know his own story, but we do mm. know that for a long time he was very deeply enmeshed in the Iranian regime. Right. Um, he was, uh, in, in fact, the front person for the Interior Ministry, which is the police and security services, which are instrumental in the crackdown on um on protesters. So he did have quite a prominent role. Uh, the law in Canada um, allows the government to exclude people from Canada if they were senior members of the Iranian regime, and that's what's happening right now. But uh, there will be a hearing, and the question is whether or not we'll be able to observe it. Uh, yeah. Mr. Samani has gone to court to try and make sure that the press isn't able to participate, but we're we're fighting that. Well, right. And I mean, you know, there's some real public interest in this case. So what is their argument for secrecy here? What are his lawyers arguing? Oh, we don't know entirely because we haven't... Uh, the, the case that he's filed in federal court is also in secrecy, so we mm. cannot even access the documents. Um, but it appears that he's trying to make the case that he uh, he's at risk of the Iranian regime because he... I. I assume from my reading of the documents we've seen that because he was a regime official who has left the regime, he considers himself to be targeted by the regime. So these are all questions that the Immigration Refugee Board will have to sort through, um, and hopefully it'll happen in public so that we can keep Canadians informed uh, about what happens. So I think that hearing was was supposed to begin next month, uh, but is that kind of up in the air then with this uh, appeal? It, it was scheduled to begin on the 8th of February, and as of now, it will continue. But if the court interferes and decides to, or intervenes and decides to take the case on, that may well delay things. So we'll have to see. Well, as mentioned, much more in all of this, globalnews.ca. We'll keep a close eye on this. Stuart, appreciate the update. Thanks so much for making some time for us here. Thank you, Rob. All the best. Uh, Stuart Bell, uh, investigative uh, journalist with Global News, globalnews.ca. So an interesting case here. So why is this guy in Canada? The federal government says, you know, too bad, you former uh, regime official, you don't get to stay. So they're trying to deport him. And so this would all go before the Immigration Refugee Board. So some real public interest in this case. Let's see what comes out. What's his argument? Why is he here? What's the government's argument? What do we know about this guy? So for him then to argue that this should all be held in secret, that the media shouldn't be allowed to cover this, um, yeah, that, that would be most unfortunate, to say the least. So that's already been rejected by the immigration board. So they heard that argument. They decided back on December 18th, no, this case is going to be heard in public. So now Samani's lawyer says he's going to go to the federal court. And there's some secrecy around this appeal, which uh, Stuart Bell noted, in terms of the specific arguments they're making here. We just recently had the big COP28 uh, climate summit and Canada, I think, attempting to uh, be front and center uh, to show the world that we are indeed leaders when it comes to climate policy. But if you peel back, uh, you know, the layers, there's some confusion here in Canada in terms of what our direction is. 
So the uh, the government used the the backdrop of COP28 to make a big announcement about um, a policy that seems to represent a, a significant change. And we're moving away from carbon pricing as the guiding principle uh, to a more regulatory approach. This proposed oil and gas emissions cap, uh, you know, imposing a cap on a specific sector, moving away from the principle that, you know, we're going to treat emissions the same regardless of where they come from which part of the country or which sector. Now, that came on the heels, of course, uh, of the federal government announcing an exemption for home heating oil, an exemption to the carbon tax, again, kind of undermining uh, the entire premise. And, and that all coincides with, you know, the carbon tax, I think, becoming increasingly unpopular in this country. So where does climate policy need to go from here? You know, we talk about how much Canada's population is growing, uh, you know, as much as we have become more energy efficient, growing population means, you know, a, a bigger footprint, and that means emissions. And that's something else maybe the government's doing that's that's undermining its approach. So do we need uh, an overhaul? Do we need a different approach? There's an interesting new piece for the City Howe Institute making the case for sort of a plan B when it comes to climate policy or carbon policy in Canada. You can read more at cdhow.org. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is uh, Charles Deland, Associate Director of Research at the C.D. Howe Institute, leads their energy policy program. Much more, as mentioned, cdhow.org. Charles, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Rob. So as we enter this new year here, what's your assessment of, of the state uh, of the federal government's uh, climate or emissions policy? Uh, well, I, I guess the, the point... I tried to make in writing that piece is that it seems as it's gone along through the past several years that it's gathered, um, it's, it's been bolted pieces on uh, on top of each other. And so my sense at the moment is it's a mix of, of carbon pricing, of regulations, sometimes regulations undermining its own carbon uh, pricing. Uh, and there's, there's the consumer facing, there's industrial facing pricing. So it seems like it's time to maybe take a holistic look at this. Right. And so does that mean a change or what What does that mean in your view? Well, in my view, it's for for one thing, keeping, I, I would say, you know, most economists would argue for keeping pricing where it's working. Uh, I mean, part of the issue is we're not super clear on what's working and what's not, um, partly because there's mixed signals on, on the various policies. So I, I think... Uh, there's nothing wrong with pricing as long as it's it's kept consistent. The whole idea of of pricing is that you reduce uh, emissions on you know, every every unit of emissions is treated equally. But when you have carve outs for certain types in, in heating oil in particular, um, then that degrades the principle. The same thing with the cap on oil and gas emissions. You're treating them somewhat differently. Yeah. So you're not necessarily getting the lowest cost reduction. So I think, as I said, like I think uh, looking across the spectrum of the various programs is is due for change here. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you know, you can have an approach that's more efficient than other approaches. You can have one that is maybe more effective or potentially more effective, but comes at a higher cost. I mean, what, what right. should the government be prioritizing? I mean, and it's obviously it's pricing just one uh, one tool. So for some time, for for many. Uh, issues, you know, standardization or regulation can work. So, you know, I, I know we're talking, there's been a lot in the, the home heating uh, sector about, uh, uh, you know, he, 
heat pumps and that sort of thing, and there's some fairly large subsidies. And those can be useful, but they're, they're also expensive ways to reduce emissions, uh, especially for those, I think, in who are currently heating with, uh, with home heating oil to move to a heat pump to electricity-based heating. It's an option, um, but it's not the only option. And, you, you know, maybe that money might be better spent in ways of convincing contractors to to get the supply chains in helping home builders build energy efficient homes. So uh, on the new side, rather than doing expensive retrofits. You know, so it's all about how do you spend your money to, to get the best bang for your buck. Well, what about on the technological side? Uh, you know, you talk about maybe ways that the government can support low emissions technologies. How, how does that fit in? Right. Technology is great. Um, in particular, it's great for when there's not a clear uh, commercial purpose. You know, so this is where our universities and colleges can come in handy, where we're doing research on the basic stuff that it's harder for companies to commercialize. This is where they need funding to basically create the technologies that can help down the road. Now, it doesn't happen overnight, right? This is, this is the first step. This is why basic research is generally publicly funded, uh, and you don't rely on the private sector for this, because it is tough to commercialize. But someone has to do that work. So looking at our colleges, our technical colleges and universities on things that might work in our particular Canadian geography and climate are very useful. I wonder, too, about the impact of the politics of all of this, you know, in terms of maybe some of the political calculations that's led the government to make some of these policy decisions or some of the blowback against, you know, the carbon tax, for example. I mean, how important is it that, you know, Canadians understand the objective of, of these kinds of policies and, I guess, more to the point, support these policies? Yeah, great point. If things aren't supported politically, they're not going to last, which is which is helping nobody. So... You know, there have been certainly uh, concerns uh, by many Canadians raised on what is this carbon pricing stuff. They, some are annoyed by it. They don't understand how it works, especially with the rebates. Uh, so I, I don't know that that's been ruled out properly. Uh, there's some things people suggested, you know, perhaps uh, paying the rebate monthly instead of quarterly uh, and that sort of thing. Um, but generally speaking, you know, you... I, it seems to me Canadians prefer their taxes hidden than visible sometimes. You know, I think we're all human. We all want to want the other guy to pay the taxes. Yeah. So if it's buried in, you know, behind the, the obvious, I think sometimes that actually helps the government. Uh, as much as we all say we want transparency, in the real world, we don't want to be hit up in the head with it every day. So it's a, it's a real concern. And, and so this is why the, you know, often there's more support for, the industrial uh, carbon pricing rather than the consumer facing, mm-hmm. even though at the end of the day, the emissions are, uh, it isn't, doesn't really matter where they come from. And it's interesting. And you, you suggested the government, you know, sort of take a broad look at all of this and see what's working and what isn't. But I mean, you know, maybe it speaks to the politics of it all. Governments are always loath to admit that anything they're doing isn't working. Um, so that, that, I don't know if that's uh, an obstacle. So how do we, how do we move forward there? It, yeah, that, that is true. They seem, and not want to uh, to say they're things are not working, but I think look that's what companies do. That's what we all do in our households. We we look at what's working and see if, if it's not working well. Then we change course. So I, I think there's nothing wrong with that as long as we say what the purpose is. Um, when it seemed to be 
strictly political rather than economically based, that's when people get upset. And I think the, the recent heating oil uh, example was one of those. But, you know, if the government brings forward um, evidence saying, well, you know what, this is an expensive program. It's not actually reducing emissions very much. We've given it a shot. I think perhaps uh, they might be given some more some more leeway on that. Maybe that's optimistic. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. Uh, much more is mentioned. CDHow.org. Charles, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. All the best. Uh, Charles DeLand, uh, Associate Director of Research of the C.D. Howe Institute, uh, leads their uh, energy policy program. So his argument for maybe uh, at least for the government to step back and be willing to look at what's working, what isn't, that seems unlikely to me. But uh, I think the case for maybe a different approach is is sound thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast don't forget to subscribe rate and review for free at apple Podcasts, google play or wherever you find your podcast you can also find me on twitter at rob breakenridge you can email me rob at 770 chqr.com talk to you next time